traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. What makes the Twilight Zone the Twilight Zone? Is it twist endings? Well, not every episode has one of those. Is it a science fiction setting for the story? Well, not every episode is science fiction either. Is it an element of the unexplained? Maybe, you know, some of my favorite episodes feature an element of the unexplained dropped into the life of an ordinary person. And I do feel it's an important Twilight Zone trope. But again, it's not always the case. We've probably mulled this over a few times over the years on the show, and I often try to give form to the Twilight Zone itself, with Rod sailing as some sort of guide or god. But that's just a fan having fun with the show. Scanning down the list of episodes, I see that there isn't really a definite formula. Some have some of the elements, some have all of them, but occasionally an episode sticks out as being that little bit different. When he made his entry about the episode that we're going to be discussing tonight, Mark Zickru wrote in the Twilight Zone Companion that although it wasn't credited, he feels that this episode was inspired by the story The Bet by Anton Chekhov, which I read to you in the last show so that you can make your own minds up on that. And there's certainly a similarity there. When we look at them in a Twilight Zone context, neither are science fiction, neither feature an element of the unexplained. Does the bet have a twist ending? Probably not in the same sense as the Twilight Zone does, because a Twilight Zone twist is usually designed to knock you sideways. So what about the episode that we'll be discussing tonight? Well, it starts out in a gentleman's club. A young man named Jamie Tennyson is at the centre of the room. He's talking and sitting nearby is Colonel Archie Taylor, who can't help but hear Tennyson's incessant talking. But Colonel Taylor has a plan. I propose a wager to Mr Tennyson here. The wagers take the following form. I will bet him $500,000 that he cannot remain silent for one year. The wager carries with it the following conditions. He will be placed in a room for observation by me or by any one of us at our discretion. He will be furnished with anything he desires by way of diversion, but he will not be able to speak one single word for 12 months. Not one single word. He will make his wants known in writing, not by voice. What about it, Tennyson? Many people have said that this is a little different from your usual Twilight Zone. Mark Zickery says it's more like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So let's see what we think when we take a look at the silence. The note that this man is carrying across a clubroom is in the form of a proposed wager but it's the kind of wager that comes without precedent. It stands alone in the annals of bet-making, 
as the strangest game of chance ever offered by one man to another. In just a moment, we'll see the terms of the wager and what young Mr. Tennyson does about it. And in the process, we'll witness all parties spin a wheel of chance in a very bizarre casino called the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on April 28, 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Boris Segal. A little disappointed that we didn't get Serling sat in a chair in this gentleman's club setting, reading a newspaper or having a drink, so it's not quite as elegant an intro as in the episode back there, which was also in a gentleman's club. This is the first of two episodes directed by Boris Segal. He would later return to direct The Arrival, and as previously mentioned, Mark Zickry likens the silence to an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Segal actually directed some episodes of that show. He was born in the Ukraine in 1923, and his first American directing credit is listed in 1955. He was originally slated to direct Nick of Time, but wasn't able to, so here he makes his Twilight Zone debut. Segal and Serling's paths had sort of crossed in the early 50s because Segal at the time was story editor on a show called Fireside Theatre. Now remember that this is a time when the anthology show was king and they would often have introductions by presenters in the same way that Rod Serling introduces the Twilight Zone. The show seems to have much more of a dramatic slant than being anywhere near science fiction. It was often courtroom dramas or crime shows, or there's even a dramatization of Hitler's last moments in an episode called The Bunker. It seems to be a bit of a lost show now. There's a lot of conflict and information out there about specific details like how long it ran for. But on the whole, people seem to generally agree that it ran for seven seasons and was originally hosted by the German screenwriter and director Frank Wisbar. Following him, it was presented by the actor Jean Raymond. And then finally, its most famous host was the actress Jane Wyman. Ultimately, the show would be retitled to Jane Wyman Presents Fireside Theatre or sometimes the Jane Wyman show. I'm not quite sure when that progression happened or under what circumstances. And again, there does seem to be a lot of conflicting information out there about the show. So forgive me if any of these details aren't quite right. But one man we can always rely on for his facts is Martin Grams Jr. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, he documents that Rod Serling submitted a script entitled The Director which was about a stage director who becomes obsessed with his job and desperate to make good with both the network and the sponsor on a TV show, and he hires an aging stage actor who can't remember his lines. Now, Segal bought the script from Sailing for Fireside Theatre, and he fed back his thoughts about Sailing's work uh, through his agent, and it said... Segal decidedly feels that you are the kind of writer they could use if your scripts had a little more scope and range for motion pictures. Now I can't actually find this sailing penned episode of Fireside Theatre. There is the odd episode of the show out there on the internet, but it's by no means a complete run. 
but just for fun, because it isn't particularly connected, I thought I'd include a quick clip, because we hear Rod Serling do his narration each episode, so let's hear how one of the other hosts of the time did it. This is Jane Wyman introducing the episode, Prime Suspect. When Mother was a girl, and out for just a lark, she picked her favourite bow and went strolling through the park. Well, we have a situation for you tonight that begins in the park, but not one that would remind Mother of the good old days. Here's something that will remind all of us of some of the good things in life, a word from our old family friends, the Quaker Oats Company. Boris Segal worked on a lot of things over the years. He created the TV series Mr. Novak, which was the experiences of a young, tough-minded, idealistic high school English teacher on his first job and the synopsis for that show says John Novak begins at Jefferson High School in Los Angeles under principal Albert Vane who doesn't always agree with Novak's approach but admires his dedication to teaching. Eventually Vane is elected to state superintendent and Martin Woodbridge becomes the new principal. Stories centered on the life of Novak, student-teacher relationships and the struggles of other young teachers. So some gentle drama there but what caught my eye is that he created it with E. Jack Newman who was that one-time writer of The Twilight Zone with The Trouble with Templeton and Mr. Novak starred James Franciscus as the title character and he was briefly in the episode Judgment Night. It also starred Dean Jagger who played Ed Lindsay in the episode Static and Burgess Meredith even made an appearance. Now I don't want to build it up as some major collision of the Twilight Zone in another project because, as we've said many times before, the speed at which television could be made in those days meant that the turnover of actors and directors and writers was a lot higher. So these connections and coincidences were bound to happen all over the place. But perhaps a more tragic coincidence is that Segal directed the first episode of the TV show Combat, starring Vic Morrow. Vic Morrow, of course, died tragically on the set of the Twilight Zone movie on July 23rd, 1982. But only the year before, on the 22nd of May, 1981, Segal had been killed in a helicopter incident while filming the television movie World War III. His helicopter landed in the grounds of the Timberline Lodge, which was the exterior location for the film The Shining. When he exited the helicopter, he was so preoccupied with his work that he walked straight into the rear rotor and died from his injuries. But back to the silence. Now this is quite a contained episode, well in fact it's a very contained episode, it takes place in one club, we never go outside, it takes in place in a couple of rooms, and what it comes down to is often these long stretches of dialogue, mostly delivered by Francho Tone, obviously because Liam Sullivan, who plays Tennyson, can't speak through most of the episode, and Francho Tone has a really great speaking voice, it's deep. It has that gravelly edge to it. So he's perfect for delivering these long speeches. At this point, he was a real veteran actor from the golden age of Hollywood. He made his film debut in the 1933 movie, 
the wiser sex and he worked pretty solidly through the 30s and 40s, making up to four or five movies a year. When the 50s came around, he moved over to television where he again worked pretty solidly until his death in 1968. Now, when he was a younger man, he had this quite slender appearance in both his face and physique. He was by no means a square-jawed tough guy type, but he certainly became a matinee idol in his early years and throughout his life, he certainly enjoyed the company of women because he was married four times and it would often seem to get him into trouble. He was married first to the actress Joan Crawford between 1935 and 39, then Jean Wallace between 41 and 48, then Barbara Payton, but that marriage only lasted a few weeks between 1951 and 52, and then finally Dolores Dawn between 56 and 59. Now that short marriage to Barbara Payton was one that would end up having quite an effect on him. Payton was kind of blonde bombshell type, bit of a Marilyn Monroe looking kind of uh, actress who had a short career between 1949 and 1955. While she was seeing Francho Tone, she was also seeing an actor called Tom Neal and he was a bit more of a brutish tough guy type of guy and in 1951 he and Tone ended up fighting for Barbara's affections which resulted in Tone being hospitalised with a smashed cheekbone and broken nose and also a concussion. Barbara Payton ended up with a black eye and Tom Neal was essentially blackballed from Hollywood for his behaviour. Barbara Payton ended up marrying Tone afterwards, but then after seven weeks, she went back to Tom Neal. Their relationship didn't last long, but they lived very chaotic lives, and Barbara Payton ended up as a prostitute, and Tom Neal ended up in prison for the manslaughter of his wife, Gail Bennett. Now, Martin Grams Jr. documents a couple of quotes from Francho Tone in Unlocking the Door to a television classic. In an interview with TV Guide, he said, Every script I'm sent to read has me in the same kind of part I was playing 20 years ago. The character's a little older, but they still want me in white tie and tails as a slick, well-groomed, well-educated, well-heeled stuffed shirt. I have to laugh and I tell them no thanks. And he went on to say, I've turned down a bunch of other half-hour film series, he continued. None of them had any distinction I don't want to play a cowboy or a private detective. So there must have been something about the Twilight Zone that really spoke to him and he continued to work until his death in 1968 from lung cancer. And in those final days he was cared for by his ex-wife Joan Crawford who would pay his medical bills. Now I adore Francho Tone in the silence. I think his performance is pitch perfect. Now he said in that interview about him playing the same kind of roles but when he fits so perfectly like he does in this I guess I can see why. He carries the weight of a respected well-bred man because in Hollywood terms he was a respected man. So perhaps this upper class gruff gentleman was an easy role for him but as the power shifts throughout the episode we do get to see different shades to him and maybe it's that that was the thing to attract him. 
we see his devious side, we see his dishonor, and in the end we learn he's a fraud, but he starts to show these colors throughout, and in the end, when it all comes crumbling down around him, he's exposed, and I think his performance shows that beautifully. The stripping away of that armor of nobility to leave nothing but a penniless liar. And it's all there on his face, in his voice, and in his body language. I think it's a pretty perfect performance to my eyes. So Colonel Taylor proposes this bet that Tennyson can't keep quiet for a year. But in doing so, he also humiliates him. He tells the whole room about how Tennyson has spent all of his inheritance and he's now broke. I would imagine that in a club of this kind, there's going to be a certain kind of pecking order based on wealth, status, breeding. And Colonel Taylor is not only proposing the bet, but he's using his standing to thoroughly destroy Tennyson before he's even started. And it's this display of power that becomes important as the story plays out. In the short term, Taylor uses this status to refuse Tennyson's request that an endorsed check be put up before the bet begins, and that turns out to be very significant. In the meantime though, Tennyson accepts the bet, and we learn a little more about him after he does. Tennyson, I've known Colonel Taylor for a long time. This is not a capricious man. I warn you, he's in deadly earnest. Do you know my wife, sir? Her name is Doris. She's a lovely thing. Frail, beautiful, fragile. Like a cameo brooch. But her tastes run to unfragile things. Sizable baubles or sizable price tags. She shops at Tiffany's the way other women enter a supermarket. My miserable misfortune is that I happen to be very much in love with her. I am also desperate in need of money. It may sound melodramatic, but it happens to be true. This is a very smart move by Rod Serling because up to now, Tennyson hasn't been particularly likable. He did talk too much, he was boastful, and he did need to be taken down a peg or two. In the beginning, we, the audience, are pretty much in Colonel Taylor's corner. And while a gradual shift in our sympathies does begin to happen, when Taylor not just proposes the bet, but then goes on to verbally savage Tennyson in front of the whole room, it's this revelation of Tennyson's love for his wife that really starts to soften our opinions of him. Liam Sullivan would have been in his late 30s when he took the role of Jamie Tennyson and he returns to the Twilight Zone again in The Changing of the Guard. He'd been in the business about 11 or 12 years by this point and seemed to be an actor who worked steadily throughout his career. Nothing particularly jumps out to me from his filmography, perhaps there's things in there that are more iconic to an American audience but he appears to have took mainly single roles or recurring roles that only stuck around for a short time in things. Later in his life, he'd spend time in soap operas like The Young and the Restless, Falcon Crest, and Dallas. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, he says, 
Rod was a very quiet fellow on the set. He let the director take over in most things. He was a terrific writer and after that experience, I was a Twilight Zone fan. The long speech I had in the opening sequence was three pages. The day of shooting, Rod came up to me and asked if I could memorize an additional page of dialogue on the spot. I was doing so well, he wanted to lengthen the scene. I said if he could write that fast, I could memorize it. He went off into a corner and started scribbling. He handed me the sheets off his notepad. I picked a corner and started memorizing. He was very pleased with the results. Liam Sullivan has these slender, angular features and he seems perfect casting again for one who appears to be an upper-class snob. But he talks too much, possibly to disguise the fact that he isn't quite who he says he is. He may have had money, but as he says, he has a wife with expensive tastes. Like Francho Tone, his performance is also about transformation. From the young chatterbox upstart to the man who stands at the other side of a year-long ordeal as the victor over someone who thought himself is better. And as I did with Francho Tone, I love what he does here. He manages that change beautifully and wins us over the longer the episode goes on. And while Tone has that magnificent voice in his arsenal, Sullivan has to do it all with looks and gestures. So the bet is made and Tennyson is placed in a room in the club. So Tennyson has to stay in this glass-walled prison for a year. And the director of photography says in The Twilight Zone Companion, When I saw the set, I pretty near lost my lunch. How in the world am I going to get light in there and show light without getting reflections? Once I started on the whole thing, he says, I think I only had to take two panes of glass out in the whole picture. So with Tennyson in his glass cell, you would think that Taylor, this wealthy gentleman, would be enjoying the peace and quiet, but he can't help but pay Tennyson a few visits. Now you'll notice that during these scenes where Taylor is goading Tennyson, you only see the right side of his face. You can hear me, Tennyson, can't you? I've been giving this considerable thought. You fulfilled your part of the bargain admirably. Matter of fact, you have completely surprised me, Tennyson. But the fact is, I feel the whole thing has gone too far. It's becoming inhuman. I'm prepared to offer you a thousand dollars and you may walk out today. Right this moment, if you choose. It's going to be an early spring this year, Tennyson. You ought to see it. In the time of the year when a young man's fancy likely turns well, you know that better than I do. And young ladies, too. For example, your wife. She must be lonely for you, Tennyson. Desperately lonely. As a matter of fact, she... she has been seen with other young men. It's odd she hasn't paid you a visit, isn't it? Don't you think it's odd? I happen to know you've written her many notes requesting a visit. She hasn't responded even to the notes. This is a passage from the Twilight Zone Companion, and Zickery writes, 
The first day's shooting went just fine, the opening and closing scenes of the episode, both of which take place in the main room of the men's club, were completed. The company broke for the weekend, but the biggest problem was yet to come. On the second day of shooting, Francho Tone didn't show up. And sailing recalled years later, and we waited and we waited. The call is six in the morning. When it got to be 10am and everyone had been sitting there in their own smoke waiting and no Francho Tone, we get his agent who tracks him down. He's in a clinic. Stories differ according to Liam Sullivan. Tone told him that he'd been at a party and attempting to pick a flower for his date off a brush on the terrace had fallen down a hillside and landed on the driveway of the house next door. According to Sailing, Tone had approached a girl in the parking lot of a restaurant and her boyfriend had taken offence and beaten him up. Whatever the truth, the result was still the same. Half of Tone's face was scraped raw. And Sailing ended up saying, I said, so be it, come on in, French, and we'll shoot the other side of your face, which we did. And in the end, it might actually add to the episode because those scenes where we only see half of his face do suggest kind of sneakier side to him so might have worked out well in the end so the colonel sure seems to be concerned considering that this is what he wanted Tennyson out of the way and the power is beginning to shift and the audience is now well and truly in Tennyson's corner because the colonel who supposedly held class and breeding in such high regard is now beginning to show his true colours but these are great scenes here. We've seen verbal sparring in the Twilight Zone before, but this has its own unique edge to it because Liam Sullivan has to tell his part of the story just with facial expressions, body language, and he does it so well. And as time goes on, Taylor's treatment of Tennyson starts to become more and more like torture than anything else. But eventually, the day does come when it's time to let him out. A rather monumental occasion, isn't it, Archie? Twelve months ago to the moment you destroyed yourself, much as I told you you would. Your little reminders are gratuitous, Alfred. Besides, it's not yet ten o'clock. Whether it is or whether it isn't, the destruction I'm talking about has already taken place. There have been ugly rumors, Archie, things you've done to him, like little asides, innuendos, suggestions, gossip about his wife. You place such a premium on honor, Archie, but you haven't acted like an honorable man. Please don't go to the trouble of denying it. I'm sure much of it is true. But the ugly affair has proved two things, hasn't it, Archie? That that boy down there is stronger than you gave him credit for, and you are considerably weaker. How could he have done it? How could he have done it? It's impossible. A couple of things to note here. I love when Taylor finally cracks. How could he have done it? It's impossible. Beautifully done. And a second mention to the great Jonathan Harris in his second Twilight Zone. Only a small part, but he's the conscience of the episode. He's the one who actually does have a bit of honour. He doesn't blindly fall in with Taylor just because they're friends. And in unlocking the door to a television classic, he says... Oh, I knew Rod Sailing for years. I did two of those Twilight Zones, and one of them was filmed, the other was taped. 
They were not very large roles, though I wish I had the opportunity to play a lead. Rod was on the set when I worked with Francho Tone, and we chatted a little here and there. He was a very imaginative man, and very gentle. Many years after, I went to work on the Liars Club, and Rod was the host. I would make these funny faces and cross my eyes, and then he would laugh and laugh. He would beg me repeatedly not to do it on camera, and every time I was evil, and he would just laugh. When Tennyson walks out of the room, he's triumphant, and he has a little swagger to him. But we allow him that swagger, because not only has he won over the club, but he's won us over too. Then there's that final twist, which is a bit of a one-two punch. You uh, have me at a disadvantage, Mr. Tennyson. In a rather compromising situation, you force me into a position of rather distasteful candor. The truth is, I am a fraud. I haven't any money. I offered you a thousand dollars, then five thousand dollars. I would have had to go out into the street to beg even that amount, let alone a half a million dollars. It's true that I have pride, bearing, taste, exceptional breeding. But I lost most of my money some years ago. Now you have forced me to uncover the situation. Proving, Mr. Tennyson, proving that of the two of us, you are by far the more substantial. And I will naturally resign. I will not ask you to suffer my presence any longer. Tennyson, you can talk. Your time's up. You can talk. Gurgle, gurgle anything you want. What's he writing? What is he doing? Why doesn't he talk? What does it say, Archie? What did he write? Why didn't he say something? I knew I would not be able to keep my part of the bargain. So one year ago, I had the nerves to my vocal cords severed. When I spoke about the Rip Van Winkle caper, I said that I thought the twist was a bit on the nose. Kind of obvious, maybe. And I suppose you could level that criticism at this, but I personally don't. It seems obvious when you know it, and there's a huge clue throughout with the neck scarf that Tennyson wears, but it really works for me in tandem with the revelation that Taylor has no money. Rip Van Winkle caper was certainly an ironic twist, but it had no elegance to it, no poetry, which is where I think the silence triumphs. I adore the silence. I can't really fault anything about it. It's a sparring match between two perfectly cast actors who deliver pitch-perfect performances. Each begins the episode as a member of a gentleman's club. Each has his own status within that club, but the story is constantly shifting where our sympathies lie, from one way to the other, and shifts where the power lies. Tennyson's incarceration is perfectly paced as well, and the longer he's imprisoned, the more his power grows, despite the dirty tricks of the colonel. In the end, both of them stand stripped down for everyone to see, 
both were living lies, but while Tennyson earns the respect of the club, Colonel Taylor loses everything. Nobody walks out of this one as a winner. I came to this one with a clear memory of what the twist was, wondering whether it would still hold anything for me coming to it with the knowledge of how it ends up, but it absolutely does. Both of its leads are magnetic and I think the episode retains its power on repeat viewings. It's the performances of these two men taking part in such a beautifully crafted story that keeps me coming back. But what does it all mean? Is there a moral to it? There's probably a few things you can take from it. Both men are living lies and both men are punished for it in their own ways. One pursues wealth to keep his wife. The other pretends he has wealth to keep his status. Tennyson uses his voice to deflect from the fact that he isn't quite who he says he is and he ends up without one. Colonel Taylor uses his status to set up something which he thinks will land in his favour, but in the end he's exposed and that status that he has is gone too. We spoke in the beginning about how this is not your usual Twilight Zone. There's no science fiction, there's no element of the unexplained. There's a twist, sure, but does that make it a Twilight Zone? Well, it's here, and it seems to be a really well-received episode, so whether it does or it doesn't seems to be irrelevant, because people love it anyway. And in the end, Rod Sailing says it's Twilight Zone, so that's good enough for me. Mr. Jamie Tennyson, who almost won a bet, but who discovered somewhat belatedly that gambling can be a most unproductive pursuit, even with loaded dice marked cards, or as in his case, some severed vocal cords. For somewhere beyond him, a wheel was turned, and his number came up black 13. If you don't believe it, ask the croupier, the very special one who handles roulette in the Twilight Zone. Okay, no feedback this week, but I just wanted to mention something briefly. I, uh, I got an email from a gentleman by the name of Sean Fitzgibbon. Very kindly, he wanted to send me a book, a graphic novel that he wrote and drew himself. And you can go to his website, Sean Fitzgibbon Art, and that's the spelling S-E-A-N, FitzgibbonArt.com, and see his work, see his books. He's a fabulous artist. And he wanted to send me it, which I thought was a, a lovely gesture, you know. So I said, sure, I'll, uh, I'd love to read it. So he, he sent it over, and it's called Domesticated Paths Once Crossed. And it tells a story of this cat that sort of wanders through these, these different uh, stories. It, it's an anthology in its own way, with the cat as this through line. It's, it's really lovely work, you know. It's gorgeous artwork. And he also sent me some panels from another thing he's working on that is influenced by Eye of the Beholder. And you can really see that, you know. If there was ever a comic adaption of that, then Sean would be the man to do it. He sent me a letter as well, along with the book. And he says, I hope you enjoyed the graphic novel. Your Twilight Zone podcast is very inspiring. I'm always very impressed how you structure each individual episode with such great care and attention to detail. Your use of sound bites is exceptional as well. I can't say enough great things about your podcast. So thank you, Sean. 
There's a great book I just read called Invisible Ink, A Practical Guide to Building Stories That Resonate by screenwriter Brian McDonald. He references sailing storytelling, some in the book, and it's absolutely fantastic. Anyway, I thought you might like that book as well if you haven't read it. Well, I haven't, but I will uh, certainly look it up. He says, one of my favourite TZ episodes is Eye of the Beholder, and I had the opportunity once in the 1990s to meet the lovely Donna Douglas. She signed my copy of Visions from the Twilight Zone by Arlen Schumer. I asked her what it was like working with Rod Serling, and I'm happy to report she said he was one of the nicest people she had ever worked with. It's just good to hear he wasn't just an amazing writer, but also a friendly guy. Well, thanks again, Tom, for such a fantastic podcast. It's one of my favourites. Stay in touch, Sean. I was genuinely touched by, you know, this gesture. I, I make this show and I put it out there for the love of the show and, you know, not to get free stuff because that that never happens and I certainly don't make any money out of it. But for someone to kind of say, you know what, I love your show. Here's something that I've done. I, I thought that was a really nice gesture. So thank you, Sean. A couple of thank yous for iTunes reviews. I'm creeping ever closer to that 100 review spot on US iTunes. So I want to thank Kevin. And I also want to thank Audio Video Does Not Work. That's his uh, username on iTunes. So thanks, guys. You're getting me closer to that 100. And if anyone else has the time to put a review on there, I would really appreciate it. If you want to get your thoughts on the show, then email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com and next time round we'll be looking at the episode Shadow Play and I'll speak to you then.